0: That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts the wild people over here all right it's the 40th anniversary of kiss alive and guess who's back on talk is jericho to discuss all things kiss paul stanley is here the star child joins us again to discuss the greatest one of the greatest live records of all time the 40 year anniversary September 10th, 1975, Kiss Alive came out and it changed Kiss's entire fortune, changed the way things in the music business work, might have even created disco. Yeah, that's right. We talk all about that. Plus, we talk about the Kiss Cruise, which Fozzie is joining the KISS Navy in November. You're gonna get an inside peek at Paul Stanley's Man Cave, because that's where we recorded this interview. Hard to believe KISS Alive is turning 40, and how great the record still stands today. Forty years and going strong. It is a testament. Classic Kiss, possibly my favorite album of all time. I'll discuss that more a little bit later. Tonight's
1: going to be one of those hot nights, yeah, we're going to get this place hotter than hell. Talk is Jericho, baby, talk is Jericho, talk is Jericho, mama, talk is me.
0: All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho, I'm the king of the podcast world. And you're my podcast queen or king. A little KISS influence jingle, the king of the podcast world, that is me, and the king of rock and roll, KISS, and Paul Stanley returning to talk as Jericho to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the KISS Alive record. Now, I'll tell you what, the KISS Alive record, uh, I remember in 93 in Mexico, I made a list of my top 100 records of all time, and KISS Alive was at the top of that list. Now, you guys know I came into KISS kind of late, if you've been listening to this podcast, when I talked to Paul all last so I talked to Gene Simmons. Eighties Kiss was my uh, was my jam, and I first got into Kiss when the Animalized record came out, and then kind of worked my way backwards. So Alive Two I was really really into it when uh, when I kind of discovered it. I love the cover, and that's why I got into that first. And then I went to, and I said, well, I, I like Kiss Alive Two so much. But I didn't really like the the uh, studio songs. I thought, well, they could have done maybe uh, another side of live songs. And then I kind of traced myself back and then uh, went and bought Kiss Alive. I didn't really like the cover of Kiss Alive as much as I liked the cover of Kiss Alive 2. But I thought I'd give it a try. And man, it blew my mind. Because keep in mind, I'd never heard any of those songs before. Because I came into Kiss in 1984. So I had to work my way backwards. I, I might have heard... I don't even think I'd heard Deuce or Strutter or any of those songs, probably Rock and Roll Night, uh, Black Diamond maybe, maybe Black Diamond because they played it on the uh Animalized tour. So I kind of knew uh, those type of songs, but I was really, really into it, especially the songs that I had no idea, Watching You, She, 100,000 years with the amazing, super long uh, stage rap and the drum solo and just really... It really blew my mind. And I think my favorite was the intro to Cold Gin. Hey-oh!
1: There's gotta be some people out there that like to drink tequila. All
0: right. I was talking to somebody backstage before and they would tell me there's a lot of you people there that like to drink vodka and orange juice. Yeah. i tell you something. When you're down in the dumps and you need something to bring you up, there's only one thing that's going to do it the way you want it. What's that? I can't hear you, Coach. Paul talks about how hot it's outside, you know. And if it's so hot outside, the only thing that can cool you off is a shot of tequila, right? Don't worry about uh, about you know a taste of alcohol can cool you off. Don't worry about iced tea or ice water or a soda you got to go straight for the hard stuff and don't even worry about beer you got to go straight for the hard liquor and I love the way when he's doing this rap he talks about vodka and orange juice he's got that really thick New York accent you like the vodka and orange juice and I thought that was so cool and this is when I was I mean how old was I 14 I, th- I maybe maybe 15 but I think it was 14. Um, I thought that it was so cool. I was like, when I can drink, when I'm old enough to drink, someday when I grow up and I can drink, I'm going to drink vodka and orange juices because Paul Stanley made them sound so cool. Vodka and orange juice. So lo and behold, I <laughs> grew up and started drinking vodka and orange juices. And I, I used to work at this bar in Calgary. I was a uh, bouncer. It was called Malarky's. Shout out to all the former Malarky's employees. And Lance Storm worked there as well. So I uh, was one of the worst bouncers of all time. I used to just hang out by the DJ booth and look at the girls, look at the chicks. Whenever a fight broke out, by the time I got there, it was usually done. I wasn't there to fight. It was there just to listen to music and and look at girls, right? And it was a good job to have because I was wrestling at the time. So if I needed a weekend off to wrestle, I could get it. Or when I got the very rare Japanese tour back in those days, uh, I could have a week off to go or three weeks or whatever it was. So everybody in the bar knew me though. They used to like me. They called me Biff was my nickname. Everyone had, had nicknames. My name was nickname was Biff because I had super long dyed blonde hair. So there you go. Biff Biff Jericho. And I uh, they knew that my favorite drink was a vodka and orange juice, which I called a Paul Stanley. Because of his intro in Kiss Alive. I'll have a Paul Stanley, please, which would mean a a vodka and orange juice. So whenever I walked in the bar, hey, Chris, you want a Paul Stanley? Yes, I would love a Paul Stanley. And then um, a Rum and Coke was a Gene Simmons. Okay. Then I think a gin and tonic was an Ace Fraley. And then I don't think there was a a Peter Chris because I said no one cares about Peter Chris, anyways. Which is totally not true, but so it was a Paul Stanley, a Gene Simmons, and an Ace Frehley. But the Paul Stanleys is what I was what I was known for drinking, and oh God, I, I think a lot. I had all like these like ditches in my teeth up near the gums. I had to get uh, what do you call them? You would have to put um, like plates over top of them. I think it's because I drank so much orange juice. Um, so anyways, I would always drink the Paul Stanley. So to this day, if you ever meet anybody from Calgary who was in the bar scene in the early nineties and ask them for a Paul Stanley, they'll know exactly what it was. A vodka and orange juice. So meanwhile, I don't drink Paul Stanley's anymore because the orange juice is very sugary. Like I said, messed up my teeth, had to put those plates on there. Like it was right near the gums. It would make like all these kind of divots in there. So you'd have to get these like kind of uh, plates kind of fused on there. And I uh, stopped drinking the orange juice, and now, of course, I switched to Yeah Boys. So a Yeah Boy is vodka on the rocks, and a Paul Stanley is vodka and iron's juice. So loved that that record, the Kiss Alive record. And I talked to Paul about this uh, upcoming, is how the tempos of the songs were increased. Like there was so much more energy on Kiss Alive than there was on the previous three records. I, you know, Dress to Kill. Hotter Than Hell in the first Kiss record. So the tempos are, are more energetic. The, the feeling, the vibe is more energetic. It just really showcased Kiss a, as this amazing kind of fiery, electric act. And I know one of the big things about Kiss Alive. Well, it's not live. It was kind of recreated in the studio. I'll, I'll tell you what. Like I think Paul talks about this later on. Most live records are like that. To get a live, live record, it's either going to have a lot of clams on it. It's going to sound bad. Or it's going to have, you know, a lot of issues as far as, um, you know, the dynamics of it and, and, and the, all that sort of thing, the sound of it. So you want this to be a perfect souvenir of the live show and you want it to be right. You want it to be good. You want it to be perfect. Um, and even though is live is not perfect. There is mistakes in there. There's a mistake in Parasite at the beginning, but it's it's real. And it's a real representation of what KISS was like. And Paul kind of discusses all of the reasons why there was some studio re-recording there. And also the reasons why it was such a huge hit. You know, it kind of changed KISS's fortune. Um, and kind of made them the, it was the first step to them really taking over the world and becoming the biggest band of the 70s, or one of the biggest bands of the 70s. So I'm excited to have Paul Stanley back. I went to his house in Los Angeles. He was very uh, gracious in, in talking to me about Kiss Alive, 40th anniversary. It's an idea that I came up with, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And uh, I guess about a month ago, I went to Paul's place And here we are to talk the 40th anniversary of Kiss Alive. It's a Kiss fan's dream. It's also a a great representation of the 70s, the kind of the early to mid-70s when the live record was a big deal. You know, Cheap Trick at Budokan and Peter Frampton comes alive and so many classic live records were released at that point in time and most of them the songs were better live than they were in the studio you think of i want you to want me and rock and roll all night and you think of um you know i want you to show me the way so live album's not as important anymore but it was a different time back in the 70s and we discuss all things 1975 all things kiss paul stanley returns to talk is jericho
1: Love you. Oh. All
0: right, always a little bit uh, scary when I'm setting this stuff up and it doesn't work, especially when I'm actually at Paul Stanley's house <laughs> and we're like waiting around for this stupid Zoom recorder to go, but it works. Everybody's excited and happy. So first of all, what a cool place you have here. And it's almost your your painting studio is down yeah,
2: here. Yeah, this is where I do my painting, and uh, this is uh, a listening room. I always... Um, I think most people have forgotten what music's supposed to sound like on a good system because we've miniaturized everything where you put little speakers in the walls. And I was in the studio one day with Evan, and we were listening to something, and I went, my God, we've really forgotten what it's supposed to sound like. And I was listening to an album, and it just sounded completely different than it did at home. So I said, let's build a room where we can really listen to music the way we once did so i pulled out my old jbl (laughs) these are uh l100s there's also a set of 4311s. the studio uh that was arguably the first place i ever worked was electric lady studios hendrix's studios and the monitors were these jbls so um i got them out had them reconed um brought back to specs got some macintosh amps and gear and uh you know the to to sit in here and listen to music is just. Awesome. Are these
0: actually the, the studios from Electric Lady? Are the speakers from these, Electric Lady?
2: Yeah, I, I know it sounded like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, these are ones I bought at the same time when when uh, I first heard them, and I went, "Wow, this is this is incredible." And speakers are really a matter of taste. Um, sometimes people get intimidated into buying something because it's expensive or somebody is is pushing them in that direction really whatever sounds good to you is what's good and Mm -hmm. some people will say oh jbl speakers color the music that's a term um you know some people talk about transparency of music and that you're not supposed to hear the speaker but um i i'm a huge fan of jbl speakers what are you listening to down down here it's hard to to get away from zeppelin Mm -hmm. you know um that just always sounds amazing. Um, Steely Dan sounds great. Really? Yeah, Steely Dan, um, you know, on a great system, when you really hear what's going on, that's, that's what a lot of people miss, I think, in listening to music, is you get a sense of a sound, but you don't understand what's making that sound. And when all of a sudden you can go, oh, wait a minute, that's a clarinet in the background, wait <laughs> yeah. a minute, that's a tambourine, that's, uh, you know, another guitar part. That's that's what makes music listening, at least for me, so exciting. Is to be able to decipher and pick out when I listen to Motown things and go, wait a minute, that's a piano in the background. So that to me is is why listening is is so enjoyable. But it also takes some decent equipment.
0: Well, and if you have that, though, like you said, you can really tell the difference between an LP, which begat the CD, which begat the MP3. You know, you buy something off of iTunes. It's just the way of the world now, but there's nothing that, that beats that. You, know, like you said, you can hear the, the, oh, there's a horn over here. There's a yeah. little piano. I mean, even like this, for example, some of your stuff, Shout it Out Loud, there's that little piano trill yeah. that yeah. you
2: don't really notice unless you notice it. You know? And that, that's, that's really the beauty of great production is that you hear things, but you, you sometimes it's like a recipe when you put a bunch of ingredients together. You come up with something, but you can't really tell what it actually is because it's it's a combination of things so um, yeah people would listen to Detroit Rock City or shout it out loud and the chords on Detroit Rock City are all doubled with a, a grand piano mm-hmm um, so to to have a, a decent set of speakers and I'm not saying you know 10-foot tall speakers with 30 speakers in each just a decent set of speakers um, makes all the difference in the world and and a decent amplifier to be able to really enjoy music you'll never get it from in-wall speakers you'll never get it from those those little mini speakers in a subwoofer that's great stuff it's convenient but it'll never give you the joy that you can get from music that I got from music when I was younger you know when I was in the studio so uh, um, to recreate that here I mean this this room is pretty timeless in the sense like vegas there's no clocks in this room all the windows are blacked out and uh it's just a room i can come to anytime um bring a friend or two in here and and uh i fall asleep in here sometimes listen to music it's almost got the vibe of almost like a teenager's bedroom too yeah you know this, <laughs> i i wanted to create a a hideaway and mm-hmm. this this really I mean when you walk into the this um house which is where I paint you don't even know this room is here because there's a wall and a curtain on the wall and then you open up yeah. the curtain and you're in you know the bat cave
0: secret catacomb yeah. yeah the bat cave right Yeah 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 Do you still get uh, joy out of listening to music Totally That never totally. goes away right
2: No um music is is the the beauty of music is the emotion that it elicits Without necessarily having to understand why you're um, reacting to it in a certain way, um, I get that listening to a certain opera, get that listening to a certain rock and roll. Um, it's just when your eyes well up or the hair on your arm stands up it's it's an emotional reaction and uh, um, it's like great art um, you know if, if you if it connects with you it it gets a response so music to me um, i still just have an incredible joy listening to music there's a real
0: time travel element to it as well like you can listen to a record that maybe came out the year you graduated from high school or maybe it was the first time you drove a car or whatever it may be sometimes i hear certain songs and it will take you back to that sure. moment yeah
2: and that's magical the you know yeah you'll you'll hear a song I'll hear a song and I'll smell something Mm -hmm. that I remember, you know, gee, I was building a model car when I first heard that (laughs) song, you know, or gee, I was eating, you know, uh, the sandwich. So, um, or I was with somebody. So, um, music is very much, um, it's a musical snapshot, uh, of your life. It's a photo album Mm -hmm. and songs very much take you back to certain times at least they do for me i mean i i can remember you know to the to the instant when i first heard a song and what i was doing where i was who i was with that's that's pretty powerful does does it work that way for your own material as well Mm, yeah um some of it is better left forgotten (laughs) but but yeah you know um A lot of what I've written has, um, a, a timestamp on it because I do remember writing it or, or the people I was with or relationships I was in. So yeah, music, um, for me, I'm, I'm very connected to a lot of my songs.
0: Can you remember, like, if I, if I said like Love Gun, like, do you Mm. remember where you wrote that? Sure.
2: Love Gun, um, I had heard a band in Queens in a uh, a park called Cunningham Park, which was on Union Turnpike. And I guess during the summer, they let bands, local bands, get up and play. And I remember these guys getting up, and they were just a little bit older than I was, and clearly they wanted to be Led Zeppelin. And this was uh, late 60s. And they did um, a version of... Um, The Hunter, which is basically... um, Is that Mot the Hoople? No, The the Hunter is actually... It was an R&B song that um, everybody's covered. Well, um, Zeppelin did it. um, It's on um, how many more times? They Call Me the Hunter. Mm. They call me the hunter, that's my name. Um, Ain't no need to run, ain't no need to... Because I've got you in the sights of my gun well it it's really got you in the sights of my love gun so i remember seeing this band doing this kind of like rip off led zeppelin version of of the hunter and i that always stuck with me and i was on an airplane one day and love gun came to me basically in its entirety just Uh, like as if like all at once all at once chords the whole thing um and by the time we landed, I had the song. I just had to go play it. <laughs> you know, um whole thing pretty much wrote
0: itself. See, that's hard, though. Like now, if you had that, we get on our phones, you get on your voice message or whatever. You sure. sing the riff. Nah, yeah. Nah, nah, nah. yeah. How do you remember that, though, when you're on a plane? It's it's
2: much more difficult. Yeah. It's much more difficult. Um, I'd say that probably 90% of all the songs I've written were written on a... a cassette recorder $39 cassette recorder I would run into you know um, a CVS or a Rexall whatever was around and buy a little pocket cassette player and I usually had one of those in my car and it would be on the seat next to me and I would sing whatever came to mind then when voicemail started I would call myself up and (laughs) sing so uh um yeah, it's much more difficult um uh particularly for somebody who doesn't have any schooling because you're you're really left to your limitations. You're, you're talking about to, musical
0: schooling. Yes, yeah.
2: you know, you have to you you can't write it down. You have to memorize it or put it into some form where you can hear it again. Mm-hmm. So um um so but Love Gun very much was uh very very quick and very easy and i knew all the parts and then i went in the studio and and basically uh brought in a drummer from another band um recorded the song played the bass played all the guitars did the the vocals and background vocals i believe that's on um one of the big compilations that we've done the demo of love gun which is virtually identical to what the same yeah all we did was copy it
0: because sometimes you guys did demos that changed. You know, God of Thunder, because mm-hmm. I just recently heard the demo for that. It's got almost got more of like a like a disco. Yeah.
2: Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, some some songs changed, although most of them didn't. Most of them stayed very much in, in their original form. Detroit um, changed somewhat, um, but that was really... Um, I think around, that was kind of like Ezrin's era. And when Bob was involved, he usually had some pretty brilliant ideas in terms of changing things or getting the best out of them. Um, And that was the case with Detroit and that was the case with God of Thunder.
1: Ah, The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling.
0: People! Let's talk about, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to get together with you is this the 40th anniversary of Kiss Alive. Which probably blows your mind to think 40 years like oh my gosh still possibly could be kiss's best best record at least as far as a perfect example of what the band is Mm. you know um i mean does it feel like 40 years for
2: you no um i i grapple almost daily with the idea of getting older because it's not what i thought it would be and um in some ways the, the, the truth is, yes, time goes by incredibly quickly. Um, and then the other truth is that you don't really change much. Um, if you take care of yourself and if you're living a good life, I don't quite know where the 40 years went. It's, Mm -hmm. it's mind boggling because you also have to remember that when we recorded kiss alive, I wasn't, 6 years old. You know, I I I was uh <laughs> right. 22 I think. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty pretty mind-boggling to to think that that album is 40 years old. It's also mind-boggling, you know, to me to think that uh the first Zeppelin album is, you know, what is, what is that now in terms of age? Yeah, 45 years, 47 years? I mean, 68 I think it was. Yeah, so 47 years? Yeah, um and that was so um, life-changing for me. Mm. That first Zeppelin album. You know, there are certain markers in my life which um, very much defined and gave me a template for what I wanted to do. And certainly, the first time I heard "Good Times, Bad Times" on the radio, my jaw dropped. It just was. It was unlike anything else. But again, like great art, great art affects you um in a way that only great art can so um to hear good times bad times or the first time i heard um i want to hold your hand mm-hmm. um those moments are are you know um uh, they're life-changing
0: well, well sure absolutely but, but but once again to a whole different generation kiss alive is life-changing what was the state of the band, though, at this point in time when you guys were about to record Kiss Alive?
2: When we did Kiss Alive, we were, you know, we, we were in a in a uh, a tough spot because we had pretty much worn out our welcome as an opening act. Bands wouldn't have us play with them anymore. Um, because you're blowing them away. Because we were blowing them off the stage and literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, th- this was a time where um, the rules hadn't really been written yet. So uh, an opening act could come out and hang a kiss sign. Well, you can't do that nowadays because it's not allowed. Like when you would do a show, it's with full production. Yeah, we did everything. And you wouldn't have to
0: ask the headliner's permission. No. You would just do it.
2: Well, because because they didn't know what to expect. Oh, yeah. And because that kind of show didn't exist. So... Yeah, you're the opening act, you know, and uh, the fact that we had, you know, an arsonist who was our pyrotechnician, <laughs> you know, or, or we had guys hanging signs up and stuff, it didn't, it, it, it didn't register with any of these other bands or their managers until after the fact. So we weren't told initially what we couldn't do because it wasn't expected but over time we were finally told, you know, you're not welcome back, you know, we don't we don't want to play with you anymore. Tell me some bands that that kicked you off the tour when they saw what you were doing. Um the the first one that would come to mind probably is um, Black Oak Arkansas, who were quite big at the time. Mm-hmm. Jackie Blue and um that that's the ozark mountain oh sorry that's okay (laughs) close it's okay very close in there one of those long names (laughs) um black oak arkansas had a singer named jim dandy ah yes and um like the original david Lee roth type vibe you got it yeah you got it and um we just went out there you know our philosophy was always we respect you we like you but we're going to go out and do what needs to be done. We went out to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, That's that was who we were and, and what we believed in. So um, Black Oak threw us off the tour very quickly. I don't remember being thrown off many tours as much as I remember not being invited back. <laughs>
0: so, like, for example, with Black Oak, did they say, listen, you guys got to tone down your show or you're off the tour? I think
2: one day it was... If you set the curtains on fire again, you're out of here or some, something like that. So um, it wasn't it wasn't a, a lasting, a lasting relationship. Hey, I understand it in some ways. You know, um, it's got to be overwhelming to have a bunch of young guys come out there committed tenfold as much as you are. You know, um, I think headliners had become complacent. And had found a, a a place of of kind of feeling, kind of like um, the the tail wagging the dog. All of a sudden, the the band on stage thought they were doing you a favor by being there, mm. and we didn't live by that philosophy. We were we were audience members. We were rock fans who wanted to be the band we never saw. Well, that, that's pretty hard to, to compete with. Especially, you know, I mean, it's a wake-up call that can, uh, can, can take you off your game. So, um, you know, I, I, th- I, I can understand if you can't beat them, you don't fight them. You know?
0: <laughs> Did you ever have any, any band that was like, hey, do whatever you guys want to do. We're, we're cool with it.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Um, you know, as time went on, interestingly, we always felt, once we were in a position to headline... Do anything you want. Mm. Go out there and give it your best. I've always believed that if I can only beat you by tying one of your arms behind your back, then I don't deserve mm. to be the champ. You know, I want at the end of the night for you to know why we're the headliner. Mm. And it's not going to be because we handicapped the other band. So I, I think our reputation has always been pretty strong for, for supporting the other bands and trying to show them in their best light.
0: Was there some bands that you took out with you that used pyro and stuff like in the eighties?
2: Um, not that many. Um, I do remember in the early eighties having um, Motley Crue out with us, and you know this was in the pretty much in the beginning of the band. And look, it was clear who they were influenced by, and it yeah. was clear um, that some of what they were doing was reminiscent. But so what? You know, they were, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a fan. I mean, without naming names, you know, there were a couple of groups where guys were going on stage before me and basically doing my raps, mm. and that doesn't work. You know, that's like, you know, you, you don't, as a comedian, you don't steal jokes, you know, you, you, don't, you don't take other people's craft. You don't, you know, you, it's one thing when you're off on your own, but, hey, if I'm going to go out there and you've already basically done a bad impression of me, mm-hmm. that's just not cool. Right. <laughs> that's not going to work. So you're talking about how
0: you're blowing everybody off the stage. Mm. Um, but then, conversely, the records
2: are not selling, right? No. Um, correct. Our, our records weren't selling anywhere near um, the kind of um, response we were getting from an audience by the, the mania and the, the kind of fans we were getting and, and how demonstrative and how um, into the band they were, you would think we would be doing much, much better, but we weren't. And somehow, something was getting lost in the translation, almost like um, we used to play a game called Telephone where you have a line of people and somebody whispers something into the first person's ear and it gets whispered. By the time it gets to the last person, it doesn't resemble
1: what yeah, we exactly, said. Yeah.
2: So it, it, in some ways, it was it's similar to that because you had us going out there and doing something, the people loving it, and somewhere down the line, it lost its impact and where it lost its impact was in the recordings. The studio albums just weren't really a reflection of who we were. To this day I still scratch my head about most of them. They just sonically didn't capture who this band is or was. So people would come to see the show, they'd love us, they'd love every the song sounded great, they sounded bombastic, and then you'd get these albums and they kind of sounded like for better or worse a garage band, which is okay, but we weren't a garage band. So um maybe that's part of the charm today in people listening to those albums but back then i think that uh people were kind of um dismayed when they got the album said this is the band i just saw mm-hmm. so um bill a coin who's so responsible for so, so much of what we were and what got us to where we are bill one day says we're going to do a live album which you might as well said, we're going to record on the moon. <laughs> I mean, it was like, we're going to do a live album, you know, um, cause they weren't really very prevalent at the no, time. And anything live at that point, most of the recordings that you ever heard live, whether they were classical concerts or whatever they were, you didn't even know they were live until a song ended and you heard some tepid applause. We set out to make a sonic souvenir Of the show we set out to make something that would replicate your experience at the show which is virtually impossible it's impossible to just take what goes down on tape and and to have that be a reasonable facsimile you know not to burst anybody's bubble but to immerse the listener in the crowd you have to surround the listener with other audience members to hear bombs that sound like cannons. You need cannons because when you try to record stage flash pots or anything like that, they cause the microphone to collapse. So it sounds like a cap gun. So what do you do? You replace those, those cap guns with cannons. What do you do? You add audience. And you add audience. What did we do? We added audience throughout, because people don't shut up during a song. So we wanted we wanted an accurate representation of who we are and who we were, and that didn't mean untouched, because untouched wouldn't have been an accurate representation. To paint that picture, you had to use paint. Mm, right. So we did. We embellish it. Hell yeah. Um and that's why kiss alive is considered arguably if not the greatest live rock album one of the top five i agree and that's because it captures the band and the experience
0: when you're talking about you mentioned neil bogart and um was the band was there money coming in Did you, were you guys like in debt at this point in time
2: w- were you financed by bills credit cards and all that sort of thing yeah oh yeah we 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 were we were digging ourselves into deeper debt it didn't matter because we were broke you know <laughs> dead? who cares i had gotten no money you know i don't mind owing more i have nothing you know yeah. you're you owe more <laughs> yeah. but you know, okay, if I make money, I'll pay you back. But right now, I'm not losing any sleep over it. But, um, yeah, we, were, we weren't we were making, you know, I, I think I was getting $60 a week or something wow. like that and feeling damn proud and mm. happy. I'm getting paid to do what I love, you know. I'm playing rock and roll music, and I'm getting 60 bucks. <laughs> you know. Um, but it was primarily um, all done on Bill coins. American Express card. Wow. Yeah, which was crazy.
0: To think about, so the whole band's basically future and bottom line
2: is on his credit cards to yeah. keep this, this ship rolling. Before we started making money, I think we were probably in the hole about $350,000, which in the 70s was a whole lot of money. It ain't chicken feed today. Yeah, but 1974, yeah. 40 years ago, Yeah, that's probably a hole, yeah. like you said. You know, that's why when um, when destroyer was out and i did an interview and somebody said to me so how does it feel to be rich and famous i said i can tell you how it feels to be famous <laughs> you know <laughs> and that's about it yeah get back to me i'll let you know how it
0: feels <laughs> to be rich but once again though you're talking about you know and a lot of people don't understand this the team that is so integral even to this day but in a different way but the team that you guys had of you know paul gene ace and peter that's mm. that's the band mm-hmm. but you're talking about bill you're
2: talking about uh,
0: neil. neil neil bogart yeah you know, this, this is another guy who had spent a lot of money, invested Neil, a lot of money. Look,
2: Neil, I had issues or conflicts with Neil based upon his philosophy of of how to succeed and at what cost, and um, it was a different a different way of looking at things, perhaps than mine. Um, you know, Neil's Neil would. You know end your career tomorrow if you could get a hit today Hmm. you know and i i was hoping for something much longer run and quite honestly something a lot more credible you know the idea of putting kiss in time on the first album made my skin crawl Um, that was his idea totally it was more than his idea it was his directive (laughs) you know
0: as the boss yeah
2: you know (laughs) um, you can only fight it so far but the team i mean It was Neil who came up with the the levitating drum kit. That was his idea. Mm. You know, we had had some really great people. Perhaps our point of view, philosophy differed, but it was a great team. And make no mistake, you know, um, it was the four guys in the band who were the engine of this thing. The engine can sometimes drive a car off a cliff, but that's what those other guys were there to do. They were there to make sure that we, we didn't you know go off the road. But it was it was a great team, and uh, whatever happened over time or deteriorated or, or fell apart, you know, make no mistake, you know, Jean and uh, Peter and Ace. And me, that was Kiss, and that's what made it happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I will never, ever take that away from us.
0: What about a guy like uh, Sean Delaney? Was he involved quite a bit in those early days?
2: Sean was an integral or integral part, depending (laughs) upon how you choose to say it. Sean was, we were so lucky to have the people around us we did. Sean really had a vision and a point of view and sometimes we didn't quite understand it most of the time he was right um when we all dyed our hair blue black that was sean's idea it was kind of like you know like superman comics you know oh really yeah i I remember being in an apartment (laughs) on 11th street i believe in the village with my head over a bathtub and the four of us getting our hair dyed blue black i mean i Okay, you want to dye our hair blue-black? Let's do it. So we all had this you know, ink-black hair, which, not, not surprisingly, over time, became very much the fashion of a lot of bands and a lot of guys in bands. You know, this Elvis, inky, blue-black hair. <laughs> and um, that was Sean's idea. Uh, during rehearsal, one day, Sean saw us rocking back and forth just for a split second. And he, and when the song was over, he said, "You should make that part of the song. You should make that a, a part of what you do on stage." And I was like, "Choreography? Get out of here! What do you mean choreography? What are we, Paul Revere and the Raiders? You know?" <laughs> he was right. He was right. And that classic move from Deuce and Let Me Go Rock and Roll—that's Sean. And you still do it to this day. Still do it to you this day. Part of the uh, it, what it you is. Do. It is part of what we do. And when you see other bands do it you know immediately where where it came from. So um Sean was a, a, a really he was also a co writer. He was a, a road manager. He was um he was a powerhouse. We were very, very lucky. What kind of a road crew did you have back in those days on the first of records? When we first got together and, and built our road crew it started with one or two people and then grew a bit our road crew was totally devoted to us in a way that i don't think is the norm or the the what's you know expected with bands particularly nowadays these were guys who would quite literally fight and go to jail for us hmm. these guys believed in us as much as we did um you know um cuz they had to believe in in something too cuz this is so completely different from
0: anything that's ever been seen they have to be a part of it too
2: yeah to and believe. and they and they felt very much a part of it mm-hmm. um um to a point where they would confront other road crews if something wasn't done uh, fairly or if we didn't get enough space or 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 whatever there was there was very little that they wouldn't do for the band and um you know, we had um, we had J.R. We had J.R. Smalling, and and uh, he was out with us. And when you listen to the first kiss alive, and you hear you wanted the best, that's that's J.R.
0: That was his line, and
2: he came up with it. He did, yeah. Because every every road manager we had, it, it was J- their job to introduce us, and each guy came up with something, and the guy before him came up with something um but those words were J.R.'s. so jr was there moose was there a guy named Peter Oroquinto, moose was there um let's see um, of course I'm gonna get in trouble now because all <laughs> so my memory's failing me it's not because I don't love these guys um, That was 40 years ago it was a long time ago yeah. but um, um but you had a good once again collection
0: of guys that were that had your back and were completely um, uh,
2: incorporated in, and into kiss. Yes. And you know, that's, you know, look, it, it's easy to say me, me, me. And I did this. It's not usually true. It's a team. It's an army. It's, you know, wars are won by armies and games are won by teams. Very rarely is it one, one person. So I'm the first to say, that uh you know, Mick Campisi, he was another one of the original guys. Um Rick Monroe was uh our our lighting guy. Hot Sam was um <laughs> our our sound guy. Um we had great truckers. I mean, you know, we started with one truck, then two um and on. Um I had a, a security guy early on, Rick Stewart, who saved my life, literally saved my life in Hawaii. And I just spoke to him about a month ago.
0: How did he save your life?
2: I was an idiot, you know. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I was on a catamaran with a bunch of other idiots who happened to be our road crew, and we we decided to go out in the on a catamaran. None of none of us knew how to operate a catamaran. We're guys from the city. <laughs> from New York. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I thought we were just going to stay parallel with the shore. So that was nerve-wracking enough for me. But as we're going out, another catamaran is coming in, and the guy says to us, be really careful. It's taking us a while to get back in. The currents are so strong. Back then, I used to read Reader's Digest, which was uh, a magazine that compiled articles and and stories uh, um, and sometimes uplifting how to kind of articles and stories and almost monthly there was like I was I was on a raft for 45 days you know or (laughs) you know I fell overboard and and existed on seagulls you know I mean just you know these horrible stories and being the worry ward I was back then I'm on this catamaran I go I'm going to be out here like fishing for turtles in in two months and hoping to be picked up by a freighter so I jumped off the the catamaran. The, the thing you're gonna swim somewhere. Yeah, thinking yeah. I'm gonna swim in. And of course, being from New York, I didn't even think that you have to swim diagonally. Hmm. I decided to swim straight in, which you can't do because of the current. So I'm you know, to make a long story short, I'm I'm in the water. As soon as I hit the water, the catamaran goes one way, I go the other way, and I look at um Rick, my bodyguard, and I go don't just stand there and jump in. <laughs> so he jumps in, and the two of us are, 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 are just Floating you know, around. flailing away. <laughs> and I'm, like, at that point, like, going into, like, shock. And, um, I mean, the whole thing was unbelievable. Ultimately, we got picked up by, by the uh, catamaran rental. Somebody on the shore saw us with binoculars and came out and got us and dragged us into the boat, and we both had sea urchins in our feet. Ooh. You know, it was it was it was not fun. But anyway, you know, here's Rick Stewart who saved my life, and in other ways, all the guys who worked for the band did went far beyond what you would expect somebody on a road crew to do. Mm-hmm. The, these guys believed in us totally. They were part of the revolution. They were, they were part of the revolution, man. And you know, you you can't win without your field operatives, and we had them
1: ah the sweet sound of sports you love from sling the collide of football pads the squeak of shoes on a basketball court the crack of the bat on a home run the slice of skates cutting across the ice but what about this one that's the sound of all the sports you love all at once, starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling.
0: So when you were just done, I, I think it was Hotter Than Hell, the third record, or, or Dress to Kill? Dressed to Kill, Dressed to Kill." So after Dressed to Kill comes out, once again, you're not
2: selling what maybe you hope to sell. No, I, I believe we... Let's see, the first album probably sold about 50,000 copies. Um, hotter Than Hell may have sold around 70 at that point and um i remember we were playing um santa monica civic and neil bogart came backstage and said the album's dead you got to go back in the studio and do another one Hmm. so when people say how did you do three albums in you know 18 months or whatever we did in necessity we were trying to we wanted to make it you know you know we weren't waiting for inspiration our inspiration was to become successful so we jumped back in the studio and did Dress to Kill, which didn't do any better. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Bill said we're going to do a live album, and he he brought in uh, this photographer Finn Costello, who had worked on a Uriah Heap live album, and um, that became the template for Kiss Alive. As far as the photographer taking the cover picture, yeah. As you know. far as as far as packaging. You know, again, making a souvenir of an event, making something that, um, was a take home of what you experienced. So, uh, I, I thought Bill was a little nuts, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember saying to him, Do you think maybe we'll sell like 250,000 copies? And he said to me, Well, let's not expect too much. <laughs> and, uh, Gave way quickly to a million, to two million, to three million, to four million. So uh, it was... And once again, it resonated immediately with the fans who were waiting for something that captured this beast.
0: Was there any sort of, sort of urgency or um, like, man, if this one doesn't work, we could be in some trouble here? Yeah, but
2: I don't think we really understood the, um, the depth... Of, of the situation we were in. Um, they did. Bill did. Neil did. Um, you know, we, we were getting to a do-or-die position. They knew it more than we did because um, they knew how deep the well was and they were running out of water. <laughs>
0: well, and Neil had basically just started Casablanca Records. Neil started
2: Casablanca before. with us. With you guys. Yes. Originally, it was going to be called Emerald City Records. And then um, it quickly became Casablanca with the Bogart connection. And uh, we were the first act signed. Um, And by the time Kiss Alive took off, he was in arrears of, once it really took off, he was still in arrears of payments. And it was coming down to either pay or we leave. Hmm, Because he didn't have any other hits. No, no, not, not at that point there's
0: a, a great book I don't know if you've read it it's called Party Every Day written by his... Larry Harris yeah Larry, Larry Harris who worked at yeah. Casablanca and talks about how Neil had spent all his money on Kiss and then spent a lot of money on this Johnny
2: Carson well first he, he had this Johnny Carson debacle you know um, the idea that somebody would want an album of Johnny Carson yeah like recorded bits from the like Tonight getting... show you know, it's kind of like getting an album of ballet, you know, it's, I mean, it doesn't necessarily translate that well. So he put this out and it was an absolute bomb, which, you know, put, put a nice, nice hole in the ship. Yeah. And, uh, then we weren't taking off and, um, initially, uh, Casablanca was a subsidiary of Warner brothers and that fell apart. So, you know, it it was, it was rough going more so for them. I mean, you know, as I said, when you're poor, <laughs> it, you're not really phased by anything. I mean, I'm not spending any money. I'm getting 60 bucks a week. <laughs> now if that got down to 30 bucks a yeah, week, then, you might then, have been we'd be, then we'd be then we
0: would been in trouble. <laughs> so let's talk about the recording of the record. I know that it was recorded over the course of
2: a few shows. I think it was 3 shows. 3 shows. I believe it was. Do you remember those 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 shows? Mm. Yeah, and I remember leading up to it because um before we recorded it, we wanted to hear what we sounded like live um, and listen critically. And uh, I think we, we recorded a, a show or two before and saw that we were playing incredibly fast. Hmm. And it worked live, but it didn't necessarily work on, on record. You know, you, you are only using your ears. You're not seeing the band. So um, there was a conscious effort for us to slow down we still played you know at at a pretty pretty uh, breakneck speed but um we slowed down and and uh recorded uh, a few shows and then started going through them to see which version of which songs we would use and what they needed to spiff them up spruce them up mm-hmm. you know um I've said before, nobody wants to hear a guitar drop on the stage. Nobody wants to hear a string break. Mm-hmm. If if realism means listening to a wrong chord, well, then you're an idiot. Because how many times <laughs> are you going to want to listen to that wrong chord? So once again, we wanted to make the the best live album possible.
3: Well, and,
2: well, an album that somebody would say, "That's what I, that's what I heard, that's what I saw. Well, once again, too, when you're actually
0: at a live show, if there is a guitar
2: dropping or a clam
0: note or whatever, you don't even really care, even if you notice it, because you're there and it's exciting.
2: Yeah, and rarely do you do you even notice it. Right. Because at a show, I contend you listen with your eyes and your ears. Mm-hmm. Live record, just yeah. your ears. Just this your actually, ears. I
0: don't know if have you, have you heard the, the Van Halen live record that just came out. Mm-hmm. Very raw, probably could have used some help as far as they released it basically right off the board that lasts forever you can't go back and change it so which would you rather have as a souvenir that you're going to be listening to for me i'd rather have an album that's had some some adjustments to it shall we say i would always
2: rather hear what i remember Mm -hmm. you know it goes back to even the reunion tour we weren't recreating the stage that people saw on our last tour we were creating what they remembered which is a very different thing when we built the stage for the reunion tour it had to live up to what people remembered the stage being not what it actually was taking into account that the original band kiss alive or you know any of the albums afterwards was the mid 70s the state of the art for a show was much, much more primitive and and um, low tech, but we pushed it to its limits. So when we came back, people remembered a show that was pushed to its limits. So we didn't go out with the idea of recreating what we had done. We went out with the idea of recreating the impression we had. Mm-hmm. So as far as a live recording, I want a live recording that's what I remember not necessarily what was <laughs> now when you were talking about uh, playing a bunch of
0: the shows and listening back, was the set list always the way that it is on live was there some moving around of the songs themselves?
2: No, it was pretty it was pretty much set. so Deuce was always the opener.
0: yes, okay,
2: yeah and there were songs added into the set list because we didn't play that long. Hmm. I mean, you know we were barely a headliner and in some places not a headliner so did we play i don't know how many songs are on that album there's probably 19 I'd say yeah. 18 or 19 well trust me we didn't play 18 or 19 <laughs> songs so we had to rotate songs out for different shows you know to to create not only the live experience but to put all the songs from the first three albums that we thought mattered onto an album
0: is there a little bit of a of a not intimidation factor, but when you are recording a live record like that, did you, were you thinking about
2: it, or yeah, you... it wasn't. I, it wasn't necessarily fun. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fun because um, it was still all new to certainly to me, and I think to all of us. And and um, to wade into the waters of live recording, I don't want to say it took away the spontaneity because clearly the album is quite spontaneous but it was never out of out of the front of our minds during those shows mm-hmm. these are being recorded right it's gonna be a little bit extra careful yeah yeah let's do the let's do the best we can to need the least fix-ups and do these songs as as best we can and if there was a a mistake or something happened during a song you were much more aware of it. It was like, oh shit.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: because this is being recorded and uh you know, there there was a certain intimidation to that. How tight was the band back then in 1975, 74 in musical sense? Yeah. Very. Very. Um that doesn't mean that we were musically incredibly adept, but as a as a band, we played we played as a unit. Um, we played around um, whatever um, weaknesses there were. but um, well, I've seen footage from then we we were undeniable. We played, we played with with a force, much like the first time we played together as a band. There was just something created that was formidable or formidable depending <laughs> on how you choose to say it it integral, was integral uh, integral yeah so um very much so we were tight we we were um certainly at that point we made no no um statements or or, or professed to be virtuosos we were virtuosos um but we <laughs> we played we played for all it was worth and we played like a bulldozer See, there was a lot of maturity there for a bunch of of
0: 22-year-old kids or whatever you were, just in in some of the arrangements that you did. Whether you record it later on or whatever, you're talking about the guitar solo at the end of She, where there's a little bit of a jam, the ending of Black Diamond, the whole rap during 100,000 years. is very Mm -hmm. tight. When the band comes back in, I mean, it's really powerful. And that's stuff that was not on the studio albums. That was stuff that you had added live for Mm -hmm. the show.
2: We were a street band trying to mimic or bring in the influences perhaps of musicians who were far better than we were. Hmm. But that's, that was part of the, I don't even want to say charm because that makes it sound a, a little soft. That was part of what made us who we were was that we were, we were a more pedestrian version of some of the bands we loved. Hmm like a zeppelin or mm-hmm. Beatles or whatever sure. it may be right sure because the heaviness
0: heaviness is there but one thing i always noticed from alive and probably why it's my favorite kiss record at least one of my favorites is it's heavier it's faster it's not it's not over tempo mm-hmm. but there's a certain energy to it like you said you're trying to capture that is not on those other records
2: totally you because know? we were we were a live animal we we've always fed off our audience Or fed from our audience you know Um, so you can't you know you can't get that except with an audience there you know I was saying to Evan a few weeks ago he was he was going to do a gig in New York and I said you can train all you want in the gym but until you get in the ring you don't know what you have Mm -hmm. and I mean you can relate to that you know it sooner or later comes down to putting it on the line so, yeah, you know, for us, it it was. Uh, what were we talking about? We were just talking about the how it was much more powerful and 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 more up tempo on the live yeah, record. And, and and yeah, it goes back to, you know, you can rehearse everything, but the adrenaline and the the feeding off the audience is something that is irreplaceable and is a component, certainly with Kiss, it, you know. The fifth member of KISS is the audience. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, But you could
0: see that on all, like, when Alive came out and then a few years later, Budokan comes out, Cheap Trick. I think Frampton comes Alive around the same time period. All had the same thing. Like, you take Rock and Roll Night Live, Rock and Roll Night Studio, blows it away, the live version. I Want You to Want Me Live blows away the, the studio version. It's amazing how you, you guys were able to harness that and become huge stars based on the live
2: versions of the songs that weren't really hits for the studio versions yeah and it's because as i said the the missing member Mm -hmm. on those studio albums was the audience right
0: how was the band uh personally Were, were you guys still
2: all on the same page at that point in time very early on we were never all on the same page but we were excited at what we had created. And I think we were all aware that it was the differences in all of us that made part of that special chemistry. So we didn't, you know, when I, when I say we were never friends, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean that we were very different people And had different interests and separate lives. We didn't socialize outside of being on tour. And even then, it was minimal. It was, uh, we had some fun times, but mainly being on tour was about playing and getting laid. You know, (laughs) and frankly, I didn't want the other guys around uh, (laughs) for the second part of that. But um, we were a gang. You know, we we felt a kinship, we felt special, we were kiss, the four of us were kiss, and regardless of our differences, there was almost, um. I think we found each other amusing, irritating at times, mm-hmm. but amusing, because we were all distinct personalities, you know, and um, sometimes not you know not the the most uh um compatible um i would rather know me now than know me then (laughs) um so but we were we were on a mission and with all our differences and all the things that made us um unlike each other we were kiss you know that that trumped everything there's some great playing on the record. I know you say your virtue
0: no-sos and that sort of stuff, but you're talking about, you know, for example, you and Ace, some of the harmonies that you're playing, you know, even with your rhythms and his solos. How long did it take for you guys to get that locked in? Was it pretty natural?
2: Did you have to work at it? It was really natural. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be in a band with two guitar players. And I can't say that that might. I, I, I don't know that Ace is of the same thought um, because there are a lot of players who just want to be the guy but i always thought that two guitars could do something magnificent huge you know much larger than one guitar so and we just played and and uh you know be what what chord what's your voicing show me what you're playing and then i might go okay and so it was a matter of always trying to find different voicings to make the guitar that much bigger you know when two guys are playing the exact same chord with the same um, fingering well it kind of cancels it each other out mm. but when when you change your voicings you can create something huge which you did you know
0: also talking about uh, we mentioned it earlier that the centerpiece of the record 100,000 years with Peter Chris's drum solo which is a tremendous solo and then your rap in the middle which is did you do the same thing every night or did that one just happen to turn out better than the others?
2: No, that, that, that was basically a format. Um, I'm not a... You know, th- this idea that spontaneity will give you the best result is, I think, rolling the dice at the audience's expense. When something works, you wor- with work within the framework. So did it, did it change? Sure, it changed. But it was within a very set framework so um it the next night wouldn't have been drastically different today the next you know the next night isn't drastically different why should it be the people who paid to see you want to see you at your best what are you going to try something new what if it sucks (laughs)
0: She <laughs> you knows funny as our drummer Frank, Fozzie's drummer, he can do that rap hundred thousand years, verbatim, completely every little Oh yeah. Woo! Uh-huh. <laughs> to where people pay him money. I bet you ten bucks <laughs> you can't do it, and he'll stand in the middle and do it. I have to uh, see I have to see if I can get him to, to, to do it for you. He will be great, man, to. and scared. But, to hear it. <laughs> but um so so how long was it after Alive came out? that it became a hit
2: immediate it was so it was so quick it was a combination of things you know by the time kiss alive was coming out we were clearly seeing this groundswell happening and kiss alive just pushed it over the edge um it was the proof of the greatness of the band and the connection to the fans so um very very quickly when it came out all of a sudden rock and roll all night was on the radio i was stunned for one reason it was live mm-hmm. you know to have a, a a hit on the radio that was live I, mean, I remember you know when i was a kid hearing stevie wanted to do fingertips part one and two which was live but there weren't that many live you know singles that came out kiss alive you know gave way to uh to rock and roll all night and rock and roll all night was uh was something people immediately took to
0: what was your mindset in 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 rearranging that song and adding the guitar solo and it's a much more complete song
2: live yeah um i think what we were trying to do on dress to kill was trim away everything that wasn't necessary and some of the songs were were shorter for it didn't have solos um um let's see what's um i don't know if anything for my baby or, mm. or you know there were a lot of songs on there that kind of just went by quickly Love her all i can it's probably yeah. two and a half minutes yeah. yeah um so in playing live it it made sense you know ace was our lead guitarist he was a lead player and um you know he he, he handled that stuff great so of course you know we're that kind of band. That's what we're going to do live. Mm-hmm. So, so you're talking about now millions of records are selling at the
0: door. The crowds are growing when you're playing. You're playing bigger venues mm-hmm. now as
2: well? Mass. Yeah, I mean, quickly, quickly, um, it just took on a momentum that was staggering. I mean, it, it, it suddenly accelerated at a, at a crazy pace.
0: Did you get a raise from your 60 bucks a week?
2: Um, I think I probably, probably made it to 65 or something. (laughs) Um, I didn't need much money then quite honestly, because I was never home. Mm -hmm. We were still at a point where we were getting per diems, you know, we were getting money to cover our eating and daily expenses, which was cool because I got to pocket it, you know, because I'm going to eat at the show anyway. So, (laughs) um, You know, I I probably had a hundred something dollars a week. That was pretty damn cool. (laughs) So um, it happened very, very quickly, very quickly, um, overwhelmingly. So
0: have you ever thought about this before? And there's an interesting theory, and it kind of makes it's it's food for thought. So Casablanca now starts making money, a lot of money, from Kiss Alive. Mm. Then starts up their whole other arm of what made them famous, which was the disco side Mm -hmm. of things with Donna Summer and Village People. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways. Kiss Alive's success almost was able to fund the disco movement. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
2: I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, look, was I hoping, you know, under my breath that we would leave Casablanca and go to a quote-unquote more legitimate label? Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't know if anybody would have really understood us, you know, we, um, ultimately we did things our way. It wasn't always easy. You know, Casablanca was a big plus for us and a, and a big cross to bear. We were thought of as one of those Casablanca acts. You know, we weren't an Atlantic act. We weren't a Columbia act. Casablanca. Oh Casablanca. Oh yeah. With uh, the guys that sing YMCA and, and, uh, you know. (laughs) Macho man. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it all worked out. All worked out, you know. I'm here. I'm in this this house. I'm, you know, I just came back from playing for 90,000 people, 40,000 people, you know, to to generations. Quite honestly, um, I've been amazed. Most nights I, I say... How many of you have never seen us before? And it can be anywhere from 50 to 80% easily and that's great. Mm-hmm. That's great because um we are a legend and there is something connected to us which we have to go out and prove and justify to a new crowd. People have heard about us. Now we have to go out there, you know, put up or shut up. We put up pretty well. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially when you're playing like a download, for example, in the UK. Like you said, 90,000 people. I think you were the last band of the festival three, on yeah, Sunday. Yeah, I have three nights. So they've seen
2: literally hundreds of bands. Yeah. Some of the biggest bands in rock and roll. Yeah. And you're the last one. And we're going out there, not nervous at all. Mm-hmm. You know, got got the kabuki, the curtain in front of us. On the other side of that kabuki is ninety ninety five thousand 95,000 people. And I'm thinking, now Now you're going to find out why we're the last band here. Hmm. Because we've done our homework, we've done this a long time. <laughs> you know, there is no substitute for experience.
0: A couple last things as we wrap up, and the, the, the classic back cover of Alive with mm. the two kids holding the mm-hmm. the, the bedsheet with Kiss mm-hmm. drawn
2: on it. Did did you ever did they ever get a chance to meet you? Yes, we've met them over the years. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of them still has the sign. um they're not as young as they were (laughs) somehow i still am um you know it's um it's awesome it's awesome to have a connection to people um those guys other people in the photo who can point themselves out um yeah i i've I've uh, seen those guys over the years.
0: Was that Cobo Hall?
2: That was Cobo Hall.
0: Cobo Hall. Yeah. So so Alive was recorded Cobo Hall. Mm-hmm. Do you recall the other
3: cities? I,
2: I believe um, it says inside. Okay. I, I don't know if it was New Jersey. Um, or
0: Probably in that area. Or, yeah, Michigan, or Indiana. Or, yeah.
2: Um, but, um, yeah, I've seen th- those. Look, we've touched a lot of, people's lives but a lot of people have touched our lives you know it's it's a two-way street Mm -hmm. Um, whatever I've given to people they've given to me you know I mean it's it's a an awesome humbling and very thankful relationship as far as I'm concerned
0: well now and and here we are 40 years later and you guys are going to be doing a live in its entirety on the Kiss Cruise, which is totally sold out, so if you don't have a ticket, you just be able to hear about it. So how do you feel about that? Have you played it in its entirety?
2: No, since, never. Since, no, since and then? and it, it was one of those head-scratchers. When we do the, the Kiss Cruise every year, we try to do something special, figure something to, to set it apart, and um, um, it's the fifth year, and it just seemed like, well, yeah, I mean— we can we can add some nuggets and some some cool extra stuff, but why don't we play the whole Kiss Alive in 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 sequence? It's uh, it's gonna be fun, you know. Um, we're gonna play it dressed the way we're supposed to be dressed, and uh, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna you know, it's gonna be fun.
0: Are you gonna try and play it pretty close to it? Oh like yeah, drum solo. Yeah, stage I,
2: rap. Well, you know, maybe your drummer's going to have to come up and do all the stage raps. have to get Frank to come up yeah, and tell you how it goes. He'll, yeah, he'll just hide oh, the behind. Wild people over here. Yeah, hide, <laughs> hide behind a curtain.
0: Yeah. He'll do it too, man. Um, last question. First of all, do you ever listen to
2: Kiss Alive? That's a good question. Um, no. No. Um, I guess I don't have any reason to. I did it, and it's um, it's great. I don't want to say it's a baby picture, but it's a picture from a long time ago. It's a, it's a trophy that's great to look at, but um, a lot's happened since then. Mm-hmm. All good, most. And um, it's so long ago that I don't know what I would get out of it. I mean, Tommy and I, we, we did this acoustic, show last week and we did rock bottom and that was awesome you know i mean that just sounded you know the 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 beginning of it just sounded Mm -hmm. great so i love playing those songs now do i necessarily want to hear them from then no i honestly prefer the way they sound now Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know um i love playing with the guys the band is terrific and it doesn't negate the past; it's built on the past. So, I'm happy to be here, thrilled to be here today. Love the band, love playing in it, and uh, don't really feel um, a need to go back to those. Go days. back? I, I mean, I was there; I lived it. <laughs> you know, I. But-
0: let me ask you this and for a twenty two year old Paul Stanley being back in that what was what was your favorite song to play during those days in nineteen seventy-five?
2: Gee, um nineteen seventy-five. I mean singing was so effortless, you know, yeah. as you as you go on in your life, you know, you, you realize like any athlete that you lose certain things and certain things become harder more challenging i just reveled in singing it was just you know doing a hundred thousand years doing um rock and roll all night it was all great you know it was uh strutter got to choose got to choose has always been a a great great song for me i've always loved that one so um you know I'm i'm a big fan of our music because our music is based On the bands that I'm a big fan of, Mm -hmm. you know, so um, in its own way, a lot of our songs are homages and tributes to the bands that I loved. Doesn't mean they sound like them, but they were created because of those bands. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a difference between copying and being inspired by something. So I love a lot of our songs because they're inspired by the bands I love. All right, so one last thing. You,
0: you, um, Dee Snyder has a podcast now, and he's very vocal in the uh, in the uh, area of not liking the fact that you have somebody else playing the Spaceman and somebody else playing the Catman, even though it's been 10, 12 years. Does stuff like that bother you, or do you even care what other people think?
2: Well, let me, let me put it in, in the simplest terms. In this case, this guy is a wannabe, has always been a wannabe and desperately wants attention and to be taken seriously. And that will never happen, because he's obviously clueless to the fact that he and his whole band are a bunch of buffoons.
0: <laughs> so that's the uh, response to, to D. Indeed. Indeed. Well, it's the 40-year anniversary of Kiss Alive. Black Diamond's my favorite on that record. I just love the, the, uh, the uh, crescendo of it and the epilogue of it and the whole thing but excited to see you guys do it in this entirety
2: in the Kiss Cruise it's going to be great you know the the Kiss Cruise is such a phenomenon and so unique in some ways to us because of our connection to our fans to have 3,000 plus people whose only perhaps bonding commonality is that they love Kiss is phenomenal when you can have a doctor (laughs) and you can have you know, a guy who cleans recording studios and, you know, a family and, you know, a gay couple and, you know, onward. And the thing that binds them all together is KISS. The fact that they're from 33 different countries and share the similarity, not lost on me. You know, it's uh, it's something that's very, very emotional for me and, and my sense of gratitude, never enough. Plus, it's the only
0: place in the world that 3,000 people will go nuts if you play Just a Boy.
2: Yes. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yeah.
0: Alright, um, Paul, I promise you this too. If you fall off that cruise, I promise I'll jump in and save you. And uh, if I can't remember the raps, your your drummer will, will come forward <laughs> with them. I'm going to introduce him to you. He's going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, thanks to Paul Stanley, the star child, 40th anniversary of the Kiss Alive album. Such a cool conversation. Paul is a great guy. And I'm really excited to hit the sea, the seas, the the, the, the seas of rock and roll on the KISS cruise October 30th. It is sold out, so if you don't have tickets, tough luck. Maybe there's a waiting list or something, but it's going to be amazing. KISS, Fozzie, Steel Panther, Lita Ford, Dead Daisies, KISS doing a live in its entirety on this cruise. And you heard the story all about KISS Alive. Did KISS Alive uh, create disco? Maybe, so blame Paul Stanley. Actually, I like disco. S.O.S. by Fozzie. Great, great tune. Great, great kind of uh, uh, a rockin' tune. As a matter of fact, let's play it right now. Fozzie S.O.S. right here on Talk is Jericho. Where are those happy days? They seem so hard to find. I tried to reach for you, but you have closed your mind. Whatever happened to our love? I wish I understood It used to be so nice It used to be so good The 70s, a heavier version of a 70s tune. So disco was actually a good thing. So thanks to Kiss and Paul Stanley uh, for helping to create that amazing uh, fad in music. Okay, uh, great, great times in the 70s and great, great times now, 2015, as the Y2J WWE Fall Tour begins this Friday, September 11th in Edmonton, 12th Calgary, 25 Toronto, 26 Syracuse, 27 Rochester. All right, that's good times, man. October 2nd, Trenton, October 30th, the 25th anniversary of my career I started October 3rd uh, 1990 in Pinocchio Alberta in the Moose Hall October 3rd uh, 2015 Madison Square Garden Jericho versus Kevin Owens you wanted it you got it okay people have seen this match uh, around the around the horn on the live events, now you get to see it in Madison Square Garden for the New York faithful. Always great Jericho-holics in New York City. Plus, it's going to be live on the WWE Network. Check that out. Jericho versus Owens. And then uh, October 8th, 9th, and 10th, they'll be in Saudi Arabia. 16, 17, 18, returning to Mexico. All right, then Fozzie takes over. Kiss Cruise, October 30th and November 13th. We start off in Rotterdam on the Cinderblock Party Tour with Nonpoint and Sumo Psycho, okay? We're hitting all around Europe, Vienna, Hamburg, Berlin, Cologne, heading over to France, Luxembourg, then we're going over to the UK, Reading, London, Manchester, Southampton, Birmingham, Newcastle, Nottingham, Sheffield, Wales. It's going to be a rock and roll party for sure. A rock and roll party tonight, as Paul would say. Go to FozzyRock.com for all the cities and venues and ticket information. VIP information all right Thank you to listening today. Thanks to Paul Stanley. And thanks to all of you Talk is Jericho supporters who download this show twice a week for free. We're able to do that. Thanks to the great sponsors for Talk is Jericho. Uber, DraftKings. Don't forget my promo code Y2J to play for free. SeatGeek. Use Chris Jade and get a $20 rebate on your first purchase on tickets. Dollarshaveclub.com slash Jericho. Truecar, NatureBox. Use my promo code as well, Jericho, to get free snacks. So many cool things. And, of course, Amazon. You buy anything you want on Amazon, do it through the Talk is Jericho link and uh, support this show. Uh, Amazon throws a couple bucks into the kitty every time you buy something when you go to podcast1.com. Click on the Support or Show Sponsors banner at the top of the page. Hit Talk is Jericho. It'll take you to the Amazon links for the USA, the Canada, A, and the UK. A. And every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little bit cashola to the show so we keep doing this for a week no extra fees or hidden charges just getting your shopping done helping me out in the process alright thank you so much to Paul Stanley man what, what a rock and roll uh, rock and roll amazing group of guests I've had rock icon rock royalty Bruce Dickinson last Friday Paul Stanley today and this Friday coming up Kerry King, new Slayer record, Repentless, is uh, is released on Friday. And Kerry is here to talk all about Repentless, all about losing Jeff Hanneman, all about Slayer. It's going to be a great, I, I, I met him, uh, welcome to Rockville and Jacksonville. We got rained out that day, but uh, take a negative, turn it into a positive. I went and uh, had a podcast with Kerry King. So he will be here on Friday. The list of rock and roll icons continues. I thank you for being here. We'll see you on Friday. And a big, yeah, boy.
1: You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and
0: Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Stay tuned for
3: the latest AP news headlines from Podcast One right after this. AP Update. I'm Tim McGuire. The people of tiny Fox Lake, Illinois, say their lives have changed since Police Lieutenant Charles Joe Glinowitz was shot and killed while pursuing three suspicious men yesterday. Debbie Lilith says everyone in the small town is on edge. Seeing
2: the helicopters around and not knowing and keeping our doors
1: locked and, yeah, very scary.
3: Police have searched the entire village some 60 miles north of Chicago. Now they have expanded that search and the investigation. Chief George Filenko, head of the Lake County Major Crimes Task Force, says state and local police, along with federal agents, are intent on finding the three shooting suspects.
2: They're turning over every leaf and blade of grass to see if there's anything else out
3: there that they may have missed. Glinowitz, who was a 30-year veteran of the police force, was shot and killed shortly after radioing his dispatcher about the three men. AP Update, I'm Tim McGuire.